12. We are in week 3 of Advent, which means that we are thinking about and celebrating the idea that Jesus brings us joy. And whenever we talk about joy and consider what that word means, I think if we're not careful, we can really miss that it's a hard concept to grasp. The idea of joy. Now, whenever we think about this time of year at Advent, what we are in effect doing is thinking through an anticipation for what God is going to do. A celebration of what he has done and an anticipation of what he will do when Jesus comes to take his people home. Anticipation is something that I would imagine most of us are familiar with at this time of year. If you are unaware, my wife went out of town for the weekend uh, to visit some family because she wanted to see me squirm. And she has left three children with me. We have four. She took one with her. That was kind. And I have been doing my very best to figure out things to do with the, the boys and basically, when I say finding things to do, I'm trying to survive. So the other night, we decided that we were going to go look at Christmas lights. So I loaded them in the van, really, so I could lock the two-year-old up in his car seat and hope that he would not squirm and would eventually go to sleep. So uh, we began to drive around the various neighborhoods in our area, and I texted a few friends, and uh, one person let me know that there was a house in our area that had their Christmas lights set to music. So all that you have to do is pull into in front of their home, turn your radio to the proper station, and it will play Christmas songs, and the lights will dance to those songs. Has anyone seen a house like this? Maybe you own this house? <laughs> so while I'm there, we pull up. There's a car ahead of us. There's a car behind us, so you can't stay for too long. We got to watch three songs. We had to watch the lights dance to those. And uh, oddly enough, they had this inflatable Olaf, the, the replacement for Frosty. And uh, Olaf would lose his air and pump back up when the lights would flicker on and off. It was a pretty weird thing. I was like, Did someone need to give him uh, some type of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation? What needs to happen with Olaf? But while we're there, we heard these great Christmas carols. We heard Mary, Did You Know? We heard uh, Let It Go. And we heard the Pirates of the Caribbean theme song. Those were the Christmas songs that we got to watch. And then a car pulls behind us and we have to leave. It's made me think about Christmas songs and why they're so important to us. And how we sing them every year. And we even sing lyrics to songs that we don't know the meaning. What's your favorite Christmas song? Now, some of you are Rudolph people, and I'm okay with that. And some of you sing Frosty. Again, I don't think snowmen have anything to do with Christmas, especially in South Texas. Unless it's that one week every ten years that we get. One song that comes to mind is, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Have you ever read through the lyrics to that? And ask yourself, what in the world does this have to do with Christmas? 
There will be parties for hosting. Now, we've got those parties happening right now. I went by one of our church's life groups the other night and I saw that the driveway was full and thought these people are so special studying God's word together and praying. They were playing Dirty Santa. (laughs) So the parties are happening. Marshmallows for toasting here in our area. That just means you put them on the driveway. Uh, Caroling out in the snow. If I'd preached this sermon two weeks ago, I would have had to define for us what snow was. There will be scary ghost stories. What does that have to do with Christmas? I've never told one except for the Scrooge. They're scary. And then there are tales of the glory of Christmases long, long ago. All of us know that song. But when you walk through the lines of it, you realize that you're singing things and you're not even sure why you're singing them. Zechariah 9 is a prophecy of the Messiah. It's telling us the story of Jesus. And and these are the words that you find the prophet sharing with us. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. So, what we've done is we've taken the word joy and we've made it a verb. We we know how that works here in our area. To take a concept or a noun and, and make it a verb. We've done that with tacos. We tacofy everything here in our area. So you read this and you see that this passage says, Joy over and over, O daughter of Zion, to the nation of Israel, because they're waiting for a king to come for them. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming for you. Now, when you take that phrase and you begin to do a little bit of of, of work with it, you see that what it's saying to us is, There is a king coming... For your benefit. And considering all of these prophecies are about a nation of people who are either in some type of captivity or on the other side of captivity, a king coming for their benefit means that something's about to take place that's going to be altogether different for them. Your king is coming for your benefit. And righteousness and salvation is he, humble and, and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then you hear what's going to happen. I I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off. And he shall speak peace to the nations. And his rule shall be from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see that this king who is coming is not just going to rule, R-U-L-E. It's caps lock rule, R-U-L-E, over the entirety of the earth. And then you have 400 years of silence. We just talked about it in one of the songs. 400 years where there is no Messiah. 400 years that that seem hopeless. 400 years where God chooses not to speak. 400 years of nothing. 
John chapter 12. But we've been promised this king. And we don't know what this king is going to look like. But we have been painted a picture of a king who is going to ride in on a donkey. And when I say painted a picture, that means that words were used. Here's one of the things that we forget about the world that Jesus lives in. The bulk of people were illiterate. So if you knew the story of Zechariah, you did not know it because you had opened your Torah and read it. You knew it because you had heard it. Or you had overheard it. Or you had overheard it again. So when you talk about these stories... They begin to well up and swell up in the hearts of the hearer. And people are looking and anticipating anything that would resemble in any way, shape, or form what has been prophesied. Not just from Zechariah, but from, the, from all the prophets. So you have this idea of the Messiah coming. And the people are worked into a frenzy. Because Jesus is checking various things off of the list as to what this Messiah will be. They're not concerned with a baby in a manger. They're not worried about Mary and Joseph not being able to find a Hampton. Their concern is, will this king who is coming do what the scriptures heard the scriptures say? Will he be on a donkey? How will we respond to him? So the frenzy is up. And the reason the frenzy is up is because they have heard of and they have seen this Jesus. Jesus is doing capital J Jesus things. He's healing people. He's raising people from the dead. They're singing the Passover song. The Passover song is this. Hosanna, which means God save us. They are in a fever pitch over Jesus. And we begin to see various types of joy in this passage. We see an emphatic joy. But this emphatic joy is unique. Because we have to look at it in light of what's happening. John MacArthur, pastor who wears a suit and tie, says this. Those soft little hands talking about this Jesus. They were fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. They were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day stagger up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it. The tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. So this is what we see about this Jesus when we look at these prophecies on this side of the crucifixion and on this side of the resurrection. But when you look at these words as a first century hearer of Jesus, if someone were to be able to travel John MacArthur through space and time and he would say to them, your king is going to die, they would have none of it because kings don't die. But you see this reflection 
of the Christmas story right here in John chapter 12 as Jesus rides on a donkey. Here are the things that we notice. First, we notice this. There's loud proclamation. Everyone's screaming. They are pro-Jesus. Commoners were included. Very much like in the Christmas story where shepherds came in. There were unexpected circumstances for royalty. That donkey we talked about. He is sought out by people who are not of the Jewish faith. Like the wise men. Verse 12. The next day, John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day the large crowd that had came to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Passover feast that is. Where they broke bread, drank wine, and remembered that God had delivered his people. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him. And they cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So they are loving this idea of Jesus coming. They're acting as if Jewish Hanukkah is taking place. Now, in that 400-year period that we talk about where there's silence, something weird did happen. There was a guy who rose up named Judas Maccabeus. His nickname was the Hammer. I've shared that with some of you. We need nicknames. We need to use them more. But Judas the Hammer Maccabeus comes in, and when he came in, he defeated pagan invaders, and he cleansed the temple 160 years before Jesus. And when he rolled into town, the Jewish people did exactly what they're doing here. So we have precedent at Hanukkah for what we are seeing in this passage in regards to Christmas. Because Jesus, in this passage, in a season of Passover, where you celebrate the broken body, and where the Jewish people would celebrate the idea of remembering God's deliverance, Jesus brought Hanukkah and Passover together, verse 14. Or rather, we looked at verse 14 and 15 already. Jesus found a young donkey. He sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming. He's sitting on a donkey's colt. But if you're Rome, you don't worry about this. Because people come to fight Rome on war horses. Tanks. Modern equivalent would be a nuclear weapon. You don't ride in on Hyundai. This is the equivalent of going to a George Strait concert and him singing opera. But you see these concepts, rejoice, shout, exult. Those palm branches are saying that we believe victory is coming. Mark says they spread their garments. We've read that, I would imagine, at some point. You've at least seen Jim Caviezel have garments spread in that movie. They did this to show submission to royalty. So whenever Jesus would ride in on the colt, they take their cloaks off, they lay them down. Because a king would never condescend and allow the feet of his animal to touch the commoner's ground. Jesus just turned the story on his head because his whole story is one of condescension. 
He became sin who knew no sin. We sang that a moment ago. 16. His disciples. They didn't understand these things at first. They weren't always the brightest apples on the tree. But when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and what he had done. The crowd that had been with him, he called, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, they continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. Joy over and over and over. These people are inexplicably joyful. And and then the Pharisees, even in verse 19, they decide, hey, we probably need to sign off because they're all in on Jesus. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. The whole world has gone after him. Verse 20, we see the actuality of that world as we see a picture of what we will eventually see in Matthew chapter 28 and a reflection of what we see in the wise men. Now among those who went up to worship him were some, were some Greeks. These came to Philip who were from Bethsaida in Galilee and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now whenever this phrase is used, when you get these Greek men who would travel from place to place, wandering around, they were wanderers. They called them wanderers. They roamed around, round, round, round. They got around. And they land here in front of Jesus and they want to talk to him. And Jesus answered, Then the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Pretty strange phrase because Jesus has been telling everybody to keep it quiet. The whole time he would do stuff. Don't tell anybody I did that. Raise people from the dead. Hey, just keep that quiet. Can you imagine? Healing sick people. Just Twenty-four. Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless a grain of wheat falls from the earth and dies. It remains alone. But if it dies. It bears much fruit. We see this concept of joy. Rooted. The idea of the kernel of sand that Jesus uses here is is what you would imagine. It's a kernel, and if you were to drop it, it would explode and it would no longer, the actual hole would no longer be worth anything. But when it explodes, seeds are planted all around where it happened to explode. So in the death of this kernel... Life is offered. So Jesus is saying, this is the way it is in verse 24. Unless I die, no one lives. So we see the idea of real joy, existing joy, take place in the, in the death of Jesus. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. 
He then says in verse, 20, in verse 23, as we see this continual concept of joy present, that there are some who this joy will be extended for, an extension of joy. And there are some who this joy will be empty. Because the idea of who Jesus is, is not who these people want him to be. And I think for many of us in this room, if we are not careful, we find ourselves backing ourselves in the corner of Jesus being joy for us as long as he is who we want him to be. But the moment that he begins to push us in a direction that is uncomfortable or uncommon or unlike anything that we may have known before, we say no. Because we've chosen to be followers of this Jesus offered joy as long as it's convenient for us. Yet Jesus never seems to be concerned with my convenience or yours. Jesus tells us that he's going to die and that he is going to in actuality fulfill this kingly role by dying and reproducing life in others. You see this in verse 24, 25, and 26. We revisit those. If anyone, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, if anyone is going to follow after me, if anyone is going to have a joy that is beyond their circumstance, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This that the Bible lays out for us that those who serve Jesus they serve not to gain joy but because they've received joy that what Jesus has done on our behalf for the sake of salvation for the sake of deliverance is what we celebrate at this Christmas season because for us to live Something has to die. Everything that we eat had to die for you to live. Everything. Not all of it can think and feel pain. But there was a point where the lettuce of those salads that you took with, where they were alive. But for you to live and gain nutrition and nourishment from those, they had to die. The tomatoes that you eat, for you to live, that had to die. If we were to go to, to better things that cause you to have doctor's appointments. When you had a hamburger last week, for you to live, a cow had to die. If you ate bacon, when you ate bacon last week, for you to live, something had to die. A pig had to die. When you feed your children Chicken McNuggets, Pink Play-Doh had to die for that to happen. The idea of life and death are eternally intertwined. 
So we can read the Christmas story and feel really good about it. Because it is the initiation of the kingdom. Low-key initiation of God's kingdom. Jesus born in a stall. But the culmination of that, it comes when Christ spreads his arms on a cross, when his feet are hammered, when a crown of thorns he wears, when he drags a cross down a hill and has to have someone help him. The deep God-given joy that, that, that we talk about as believers those are all fully resting in the death of Jesus. Christmas is an initiation. The crucifixion is a culmination. But the resurrection is a celebration of that. We have experienced the fullness of God when we say that our joy is in Jesus. And I pray for us that that won't be an empty joy where we see it and leave it. But we will take serious the words of Jesus where he says, this is the way it is. If you really are in me, you'll see what it means to serve for my sake. I want us to do this this morning. Um, just bow our heads. That idea of death for life, uh, that's what we think about. That's why we're here. That's why we do church. That's why we... Sing songs. Do we fix our eyes on this Jesus? In just a moment, um, we're going to distribute communion. And you feel free to take this at, as you feel led. I'm not going to give you a key point or tell you to lift your cup and your cracker. I, I just want you to think on this. It, communion is for those who have a relationship with Jesus. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, there are much better snack options than what we offer you. But if you know Jesus, we take this communion to remember his death and his resurrection. To think on the idea that he was broken so that we could be whole. So that he bled so that we would not have to. So that we, we can be people who are in Jesus because Jesus has chosen to condescend and make himself like us even in death. So when my guys distribute the crackers in a second. Take a moment and just thank Jesus for dying so that you could live. And then we'll sing together to this Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for today. I thank you for these sweet people. I thank you that we could open up your word and that we could hear that you have things to say to us, God. And that, that we do realize that you have brought together this coming king and this Passover feast. And that you, Jesus... Unite those purely and completely so that we can take this cup 
and eat this bread because your death gives us life. And Christmas takes us there. Lord, thank, we, thank you for today. We ask all this in your powerful name.